0: This is Kit Simons and you are listening to the Fulham Focus Podcast.
1: stay back and that may prove a shrewd
2: decision. Blackburn with some late defending to do here.
0: Goldbeck. back. Clark wants it and gets it. Davis and Sahar in the middle. Clark deflected Davis!
1: Hello, welcome to the Full and Focus podcast. My name's Matt Boisclare and thank you very much for joining us for our 20-year anniversary 2000-2001 Division 1 Championship winning show. It's just gone 20 years since the Whites were promoted to the Premiership at Huddersfield on the 14th of April 2001, following a quite magnificent Division 1 campaign under the guidance of Jean Tigana. So firstly, I've got Danny with me to go back over that season, plus a very special guest. I'm delighted to welcome Kit Simons to the show. Kit, thanks very much for joining us. How are you doing?
0: Yeah, my pleasure. Pleased to be here, boys.
1: Wonderful, wonderful. Okay, Um, let's get right into it then. In the summer of 2000, Jean Tagana was something of the surprise choice to take over as permanent manager from Paul Bracewell, following the latter's sacking as the Whites failed to mount a serious promotion push during the 1999-2000 season. Karl-Heinz Riedler and Roy Evans took over until the end of that season, until the arrival of the Frenchman. Kit, what were your impressions of Tagana when he first joined? I remember he revolutionised the club off the pitch as well as on it. And, for example, brought in two training sessions per day too.
0: Yeah, well, three training sessions. In fact, that was three season. I remember going away, yeah, we'd, um, we'd get up and have to go for a run before breakfast. Uh, then have breakfast and like a training session in the morning, training session in the afternoon. So it was it was a, a completely different different way of working, different way of training, different way of living your lives. I mean, um, like body fats, we'd never heard about them before, really. And they they became a massive thing, but it did it really well. So it became almost like a competition as well amongst all the players with the body fats because they were put up, I think once, once every couple of weeks we did them. And then uh, the results were put up on the wall uh, and you can see, the boys got really competitive just with that, as well as everything else. And, um, you know, everyone wanted to have sort of like the lowest body fat and things like that. And, but it was a completely different way of, of training. And like I say, living, living your life, but the eating and drinking and body fats and stuff like that. Yeah, and
1: I guess in British football, we've kind of seen it before with Arsene Wenger at Arsenal. Um, but certainly haven't seen it at that level of, of English football, have we, In um, in the second tier?
0: I mean, there were a few. let like say Wenger being probably the the main one who had this you know European way of of coaching and training and stuff. Um, it was a bit of a shock, but you know, full credit to the group of players that we had there at the time. Everyone just got on board with it sort of straight away, and we really like hit the ground running.
2: Hello, Kit. Absolute pleasure to have you on the show, as Matt said, and you know, really appreciate it. Obviously, Tigana, I've heard, also got your dental records checked and made sure that your mouth hygiene was all up to scratch and that. How did you get on with that?
0: Um, yeah, fine. I mean, luckily, my gnashes have always been all right, really, so I've uh, had too many problems with that. But again, it was it was quite a French thing. Like, was, was was sort of like doing it when he came into Liverpool. A lot of... Um, sort of injury problems hamstring problems and stuff with players they were saying could be caused by you know overcrowding of your teeth and yeah poor dental hygiene and wisdom teeth coming through and all sorts of things like this I mean it's still done today and it's still very important but at that time it was what everyone was talking about and it was sort of like um, you know when metatarsals became the the injury uh, of fashion uh, I think Sorting your teeth out became uh, the way to do things. So I I do believe in it. I think there's a lot in it, but it wasn't quite as big as it was made out to me, to be perfectly honest.
1: So not only did he revolutionise what was going on off the pitch, but he also brought in some new players as well. He made some changes to the playing staff, bringing in Louis Saha, John Collins, and of course, Louis Boamorte joined on loan from Southampton. Um, But he also transformed the game to the likes of Rufus Brevitt and Barry Hales too, we all knew how good Sahar and Boamorse went on to be. Plus, John Collins had an impressive career already. But how did he go on to almost transform the careers of the other players in the squad to eventually make them household Premiership names?
0: Yeah, I think that was that was probably one of the biggest things. Like I say, it was a completely different way of training for us, sort of established British players, if you like. But also, the way of playing a complete playing style. So, I mean, Rufus was was the, the best example for me. I mean. Rufus used to kick anyone, he'd put anyone up in the stands. Um when we got promoted under Keegan, you know, Rufus was was tremendous, but he's a real no-nonsense left back. And then suddenly he was transformed into this real ball playing left back. And to go on as big thing with all us defenders, even in training, if we gave away a foul, he would go mad at us. Because he believed if we would be better than the other teams in the league if if the game was an open, free-flowing game. You know, teams best way of beating us would be a stop-start match where they were getting set pieces and things like that. So he's, he's like with us, don't give away set pieces. Don't give away free kicks. So sort of no faults became a big thing. So editing kick-it centre-halves like me and tough tackling left-backs like Rufus, it was such a different way of playing and, and working and training. And um, But that became the way. He, he was really strong on it to go and really focused with it. He sort of hammered home right all through that pre-season going into the first few games, that was the way we were going to play. And we were sort of under no illusions as well. You either bought into it or you were out. He was a nice guy to go, but I think he had a, a, a tough side to him as well. And you knew you had to buy in. And like I said, we all did straight away, which, which is credit. Because, you know, it's a very different way of working for, for a lot of us boys who've uh, been there for a few years. Um, but the, the players bought in straight away.
2: I mean, Tigana was also very fortunate to inherit the group that Keegan and Bracewood had assembled because um, when you when you think of those early Premier League years uh, and the team that Tigana got promoted with, the core foundation of that was built off of players that were already at the club. Uh, I think the only thing that was missing was that little bit of pace and, and maybe that sparking attack and obviously John Collins came with the, with the passing range and the vision and then Adding the likes of Louis Sahar and, and Balmorte reminds me a little bit of when we added yourself and, and Cookie to the back three, and the way it helped Simon Morgan go from being like the main man to like someone that could be a, a foil off of you. Um, it, it sort of took the pressure away from him, and I, and I feel that is the same scenario with Barry when Tigana took over. The likes of Bar and Sahar became the the players that maybe took the, the attention from the, the players that were marking them. And it just gave Barry that little bit of space and, and having that extra player in attack off of Sahar, it just opened up our options and made it, I think, a lot easier for Barry to transition into that Tagana team.
0: Yeah, no, I listen, I agree with you, Dan, completely. I mean, it was just sometimes, you know, you, you need a little bit of fortune, maybe a little bit of luck. So I think Tagana coming in, was fortunate with some of the players that he, that he already had there. Lee Clark was already at the club. Players like that. Shorty Davis was a young player coming through, really sort of establishing himself and turning into the top player that, that we knew he became. Um, so there, was, there were a lot of good players already there. But but like you say, the, the players he bought in, I mean, the quality. Louis Saha gave the best performance over the course of a season I've ever seen anyone give. I was sub for quite a few games, but it was like a privilege to watch it. He was like incredible that season I mean the football that we played as a team was brilliant but Louis's individual contribution that season was incredible because because Barry was brilliant as well but he was eclipsed by Louis you know and so many great performances that season I say John Collins Lee Clark Johnny Davis you know Boa brilliant brilliant performances throughout the course of a season but I think for me certainly all of them were just eclipsed by King Louis you
2: mentioned there that you was on the bench for a lot of the first half of the season. Obviously, you went from being a really integral part of the team under Keegan uh, and Bracewell and then were sidelined with Cookie and Melville being the first choice. How did it feel? Was you frustrated or was you just still happy to be involved with it?
0: Um, yeah, frustrated. I was one of those who wanted to play every game, you know, all my previous clubs and my time up to then at Fulham, I was used to it. I mean, that it was a funny season. Like, it was, a, like I say, an incredible season for the football club. But it was a bit of a frustrating one for me. And I mean, also, a lot of things happened during the course of that season. Cookie had his car crash um, and things like that as well. So there's a lot went on during the course of the season. Like I say, it wasn't all moonlight and roses. Like I say, for, for the actual the football on the pitch was brilliant. A, bit, a little bit frustrating for me at times because I was watching it and I wanted you wanted to be right in the middle of it and being part of it was still great and stuff and I I loved it but um it could be a bit frustrating and that's why I ended up leaving the club you know we got promoted Premier League you know and I knew I was going to... if I was a big part player in the in the in the push for promotion once we got promoted you know I knew I wasn't going to play every game so that's why I wanted to leave so I loved the club loved all the people there the fans everything but you know I'm a footballer I I had to play football week in week out that's what I wanted to do so um that played a big part. So it was. i say there's a lot happened in the, in this season that we're talking about now, as well as just the the brilliant sparkling football and the the great individual performances. There was a lot of other stuff going on in and around it as well.
2: Kit, before we move on, I just want to ask you about the role John Collins played in the communication side of things. Obviously, you've spoken about how the players adapted to, to Ghana's way pretty quickly. But um, it was rumoured at the time that John was fluent in speaking French. And that was one of the key reasons that uh, Tagana wanted to reunite with him after their time at Monaco. How much of a role did he play in, in that side of things at first?
0: Yeah, it's quite interesting. He, he came in, John, obviously, as a, you know, as a player uh, with a real pedigree. played played in France with Monaco and you know, was a very, very good player. But his title was sort of player coach and he, he would get changed in the staff changing room. So we were all a little bit wary, to be honest, to start with. Because, I mean, as I said before, the success previously, certainly under, under Keegan, a lot of that was built on a really amazing team spirit. And then even under Brace, he brought in the likes of Lee Clark and Andy Melville and Kevin Ball. Players like that were real good lads and again, brought into that team spirit. So suddenly we had someone come in who was like player coach but changed in the staff changer room. So we were a little bit wary to start with. And I think Tigana felt he needed him because he's he's quite an introvert character, Tigana. And um I don't think he was overly confident with his level of English, which was actually pretty good. I've managed and, and coached abroad over in China and stuff, and Football's unique. You can get your point across with football, regardless of whether you all speak the same language. Football's like this universal language. And Tagana was probably a lot better than he thought he was at getting his point across. Um, but John played a big part. Had obviously, a few French-speaking players coming in and John helped them very much. And he did He did a little bit. Sometimes, certainly in early days, maybe Tugana would would go through John a little bit. But like I say, he could he could basically get his point across himself to Garner. He was probably a lot better than he thought he was at conversing with with us lads, um, and it probably worked a lot easier than he thought it was going to as well. To be perfectly honest, um, but John was was obviously a, a brilliant, really really talented footballer, and he, he was he was that sort of link. You know, like I say, we were we were all a little bit wary because he was changing in the staff changing room, so we were careful what we said. But that soon sort of went, and we. You know, everyone was in it together, and we soon sort of realised that and the way that that we worked. So he was he was a good conduit, I think, between yeah, you know, between the the players and the manager.
1: Are you surprised, Kit, that he hasn't gone on to have more of a a managerial career? I think he was at Hibs for a little while um, and left there, and I kind of expected a a, a character like him. He's very well spoken, um, knows so much about the game. And had such a good career as well. I, I kind of expected him to just become kind of a mainstay on the managerial merry-go-round, if you like. And it hasn't really worked out for him. Is is that something that surprises no, you? I
0: mean, it's, uh, to, to an extent, yeah. Because he, you know, he, like you say, for all those reasons that you've just mentioned, you could have you could imagine him being a decent manager and becoming an established man, but. Yeah, it's, it's obviously, you know, I've I've been in a similar situation Had a, had a go as, you know, caretaker, manager of a few clubs, manager of Fulham. It's, yeah, it's difficult. It's sometimes it can, um, it, certain areas of it can put you off maybe a little bit and he might feel that he just doesn't need it. I don't know. But, yeah, I, I must admit, I'm like you, I'm a little bit surprised that he's maybe not stayed in the game coaching and managing because he's, he's got a lot to offer, I'd imagine, certainly.
1: Kit, okay, I wanted to just bring you back to Louis Saha. Um, you mentioned him already, but he scored 27 league goals throughout the course of the season in the league and 32 in all competitions. You said how much of a privilege it was to watch him. And then you've also said how as a, um, uh, a lump it and kick it centre-half, which I don't think you particularly were, but you certainly were never going to be able to keep up with Louis Saha. I guess you came up against him in training. Uh, did, it, did it take every ounce of your being not to just want to kick him and stop him?
0: Um, well, it sort of did, but also we knew how important he was to the team. So you know, we we all yeah. we all love Louis. Uh, he's a brilliant lad as well. He's a smashing fella as well, and so we were all sort of quite protective of him. And he, he took some waxing games from opposition, and you know, opposition managers would target him because as as good as the team were, he was the key player. He was the main man for me, without a doubt. And and other people saw that, so. No, we wouldn't we wrapped him up in cotton wool a bit in training and wouldn't go too close to him just to make sure he was fit for games because we knew what a special, special player he was.
1: I mean, you say you wouldn't go too close for him. Probably went for the want to try him, but you're unlikely to have got anywhere near <laughs> exactly. him anyway. It was just so quick, I mean, I'm, so I'm, quick. I'm, flat,
0: I'm flattering myself here. I couldn't get near him <laughs> yeah. for a That was like, we just make out we were backing off Louis and training, but we couldn't get close to <laughs> him anyway.
1: It was taking the piss a little bit at that level as well to have the likes of Saha, Hales and Boamorte as that front three just pace all round at that level against potentially some ageing, slower centre-halves Just unbelievable frontline, wasn't it?
0: Well, it was. And you, I mean, you mentioned the pace, which I mean, Louis was lightning, Louis Saha, Mm. Boa was really quick, and so was Harry Bales as well. But the three of them were on the same sort of wavelength as well for like link up play. And, you know, at any time, one of them would come short and two would run long and, you know the fact we we got was it 101 points and scored so many goals is testament to you know the whole team and the way the team played. But those three linking up and they must have been a, a you know defenders nightmare to play against.
1: Yeah, quite, quite. All right, Danny, I just want to come to you. Um, we went 11 games undefeated at the start of that season. As a fan, what was that like? What were your memories of those opening games where we kind of went from a team that was middle of the road in the in Division One? The previous season to just making such an explosive start to that season.
2: Well, the the most exciting thing for me was not the fact that we were just winning every single week. It was the style of football and it was the fact that we were scoring goals. There was a lot of games under Bracewell. I remember that December. Think we drew every game nil nil, which is great for kit. But uh, as a (laughs) fan, it's um, it's a bit bit like watching paint dry. So. I think for me, that was the, the biggest change. And obviously, when, when you're dominant and you're, and you're winning every week, I mean, you, you just can't wait for the next game to begin. Uh, I think my, my favourite game of that run-in would be the second game away to Birmingham. It was on the TV. Uh, you were probably there, Matt. I, I watched it on the TV. And the commentators just couldn't believe how good we were because Birmingham, I think, were tipped to be pretty good that season as well. And I remember Trevor Francis after the game saying we were the best away team he had seen at his time at Birmingham. And I don't think that's an exaggeration. I genuinely do think that's how good we was. I would actually say the only team at that level that I've ever seen that probably compares to Fulham is that Wolves side that got promoted a couple of years ago. And you've seen how they've gone to establish themselves in the Premier League. And it was—it's just like we were just a class above. We'd assembled a squad that was just too good for that level, Uh, and I think that's the only way I can describe it, really.
0: Saying that, Dan, I think going into it, we weren't. Nobody had made us one of the favourites for promotion, had they? I think you know, with with the good players we spoke about, we already had at the club. Because Louis, Louis signed from Mets, wasn't it? I think he only scored four goals for them the previous season, and Boa hadn't done brilliantly at Southampton. So they were like inspired signings by Tigana and he just the way he, we trained and the way he played them. But we weren't rated or fancied. I think right from the first game, the crew at home, first day of the season, I think I was suspended actually for that. So I was watching it in the stands and just the, the foot, 2-0, wasn't it? But the football was brilliant. As you said, Dan, the style of play was, winning games is is, is a great habit to have, but the style of play and the manner we won the games was, was
2: yeah, I've always imagined Tigana was an amazing coach or his coaching team as a, as a team, they was amazing. And as we've already touched on the likes of Rufus and Barry, and when you've got a, a manager or a coach that's able to take players to another level and improve everyone at the club, it's such an advantage because at that level of football, everyone's competitive. It's it's a very hard league to get out of. I think everyone can beat everyone. but. When you've got a manager that can take everyone to another level, I just think it's very hard to compete against. And we were lucky to have that in Tagana.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree. And it's I sort of liken it a little bit, obviously, at, at the league below. But, you know, sort of United's dominance. They, you see, listen to Gary Neville, whoever's speaking now. They say a lot of it was down to the manager. But a lot of it was the way they trained, the way they lived their lives. You know, they were fitter than other teams. Now, I remember that season, like I say, Tigana was smashing us with the body fats and players not drinking and things like that. And we all bought into it, which was a bit of a shock to the system for a few of us, I can tell you. <laughs> um, but we all, bought it, we all bought into it. And we were fitter than other teams. You know, we were, we were like a lot of our goals, because we, we were dominating teams, but then they eventually sort of crumbled in the second half of games because it was relentless pressure. And we were just fitter as, as much as anything else.
1: Well, another player who absolutely shone at the beginning of that season was Fabrice Fernandes, who I think is almost the forgotten man these days. He joined us on loan from Wren, Very, very skillful midfielder whose quality absolutely stood out in Division One again, um, but he petered out a little bit um, and he seemed to just get the ump a little bit before being dropped and then leaving the club. What was he like?
0: Yeah, he was an interesting character, Fabrice, but like you say, I think that's just one way to put it, but it was a real talent. Great, great ability. I think he scored a couple of. I think it was Northampton in the cup in the, in the home. We lost the, the away leg one nil. He scored his chip, which was like postage stamp, right into the stanchion of the goal. It was, it was brilliant. And I remember a free kick then against Man United in the cup. Incredible quality. But yeah, he could. I think you hit it on the head. He could get get the ump quite a lot, and he did. And he sort of had a few fallings out and didn't always help himself with. Again, lifestyle and character stuff, what Tigana was very big on. And although he bought Fabrice in, he was a fellow Frenchman, he, he, I don't think Fabrice always helped himself, but certainly had ability to play. He was, he was a hell of a talent. Uh, it's just a, a bit of a shame. I think he went really go off to Southampton, end, didn't he, after that, and never really saw like the the best of him in, in British football.
1: Well, yeah, it, it got to Christmas time, Danny, um, and it had been total football all the way so far. Although Watford had also made a magnificent start to the season. They were undefeated in their first 15 games with 12 wins and three draws. But their wheels began to come off in November where they lost five games in a row and were without a win in seven matches when they arrived at the cottage on Boxing Day. We then, of course, went on to hammer them 5-0 that day. What do you remember about that game?
2: Yeah, well, first of all, before we touch on that game, I just want to say that goal Kit mentioned against Northampton, I think is one of the most underappreciated goals I've ever seen. Brilliant goal. Um, Yeah, going on to the Boxing Day game, obviously it was a big game between the top two clubs and I think it was probably our first test of how good we actually was, if you like. you know, We knew we were going to be up there or thereabouts given how we played up until that point, but it was the first battle with someone we were going toe-to-toe with, if you like. And to come away with a 5-0 win, I mean, there was no doubts after that that we were 100% the best team in the division. Obviously, Barry getting his hat trick was fantastic. Stulchers um, nicked a goal as well at the end. And unfortunately, we didn't know it at the time, but um, I'll always think of that game as being the last game Cookie played at the Cottage, because he, he played against Stockport on New Year's Day, and then that was him because uh, of the unfortunate accident. So, yeah, it was a, a wonderful performance, but I think it'll always be remembered for... Barry's hat trick and cookie's last appearance for me.
1: Yeah, that um just really quickly, that Stockport game, I went to that on New Year's Day and was really hungover and was it was I don't know what Edgeley Park's like these days, but stood on the block of concrete behind the goal and watching the players warm up and stulchers hit a shot that went over the bar in the warm-up. And it was coming right towards me. I thought, I'm going to catch this. And it bounced right in front of me, hit the step in front of me and then jumped up and smashed me in the mouth. So that was my uh, my, my memory of uh, of that game. And I think we lost that one as well. It's just a miserable game. Um, yeah. But yeah, that Cookies last game, I was, I was going to come on to it. We have to talk about what was to happen shortly afterwards, Cookies car crash, which was a massively sad part of that season for anybody associated with the club. Um, but Kit your best mate and club captain suffering those terrible injuries in such a horrific manner it not only meant that he'd missed the remainder of the season but it would ultimately end his playing career as well but it meant that you were back in the first team as a regular for a while so how difficult was it for you to come back into the side under such emotional circumstances i suppose
0: uh yeah it was Because obviously we spoke about earlier you know I, I was sitting on the bench for a lot of this time wanting to play but you want to play because you want to get your chance in the right way. So, I'd suddenly got what I wanted, but in the worst possible way. I think the Man United. I think this is the cup game was was like the first game after his his accident, and I, I was so I was chucked straight in, um, and you know delighted to be playing against Man United, but, but certainly not in those circumstances. And it had been like a horrible week, obviously knowing what had happened to him and the the the, the condition he was in and stuff like that. So. It was my best mate, but he was—he was a larger-than-life character around the football club as well, and and sort of loved by everyone, and was just such a good lad. And it's, i think it really hit everyone. I mean, we were doing really well anyway, obviously, but if anything, that got everyone together even more, and we were all of the mindset well, we're going to go and you know sort of win the league for Cookie now, and we need to carry this on for him. And I think that's—that's that's pretty much what everyone did.
2: Kit, a few questions I've got for you now that have unravelled after talking about Cookie and a few other things you've said. I would imagine, although we was a really experienced team and there was a lot of leaders, I would imagine that Cookie was at the forefront of that. He was obviously the captain. Was there anyone that stepped up into that role in the dressing room? And that when that happened, and and he wasn't able to play anymore, was there anyone that took over that leadership role? I
0: don't think there's any one person who really. Stood up. I think it was more a collective thing. You know, we realised he was always going to be a huge miss because he, like I say, he's such a big personality on and off the pitch with the way he was. And so I think everyone stepped up, and you know, and everyone appeared to be of of the same mindset. You know, we we've all got to do a bit more because we're missing our captain and, and our leader type thing. So I wouldn't say it was any one person. I thought pretty much everyone responded.
2: Obviously, Andy Melville is another fellow Welsh international. We all know how close your relationship is with Cookie. So what was your relationship like with Andy? And was it the same? Did you have the same understanding on the pitch? Or did you have to work a bit on that in training?
0: No, no, it's similar. I've I've known Mel for years as well. I mean, we'd all played together for Wales for a long, long time. You know, me and Cookie are under 18 level with Wales, and me, Cookie, and Mel from under 21s. So we we played together, you know, different sort of permutations of the partnership with Wales um, over a long period of time. So Mel was a big mate before he joined the club. It uh, still is now, you know, both Cookie and Mel, obviously, I, I speak to regularly now. So, no, so that in that respect, like I say, it was hard for me sitting, watching Cookie and Mel, but they were two of my best mates as well. So, you know, I, you want wanting, obviously, the team to do well, your mates to do well, but you want to play yourself. So, when I came back in, like I said it was really difficult because of what had happened to Cookie, but the fact I was playing alongside Mel helped, I think, a lot for me. It made my going back in a, a, that little bit easier, certainly.
1: There's Alan Nielsen as well at the club. He's, he was Welsh as well, wasn't he? We basically had the... Entire Welsh central defence, he was Welsh, wasn't he? I haven't made that up,
0: yes, yeah, yeah, no, that's right. I'll play for Wales and, and Paul Charles played for Wales as well, yeah. So it was a good, good, uh, obviously, none, none of them had have struck quite a strong Welsh accent as me, like, right? but uh, <laughs> there we go, yeah.
2: uh, nice one. Um, so you mentioned earlier about Man United's the way that the manager was with them. Obviously, we then came up against Man United and it was first of the Premiership against first of Division One. Uh, That's how I'll always remember it in the build-up. How did you feel going into that game as a group? Was you relishing the challenge of playing against Man United or did you see it as a distraction because it was the third round of the Cup, so it wasn't like a massive game? Was it all about promotion or did you look forward to competing against Man United?
0: I mean, going into that game, it was all a bit of a blur because this was literally a few days after Cookies crash. So normally you have a bit of an eye on what the press are writing and the build up to the game. But for this one, I had no idea what was going on in that respect because it was all, like I say, my best mate was laid up in hospital with a really, really bad car accident. So football... As much as, you know, I love it, it's very much secondary to the other side of things. So, that that was my focus leading up to that Man United game, was just, I couldn't focus on anything else. I mean, once I got there to the cottage for the game and the whistle blew, then, don't get me wrong, I was, I was fully committed and fully focused on trying to beat Man United. I know I had a bloody great chance. I missed a bit of a sitter, if I'm honest, from a corner. But, but yeah, let, let's say the, the build-up. I know for other people, there there was a bit of a build-up, but... I didn't take too much notice of that because I was, I was focused on other things. Quite
1: unlikely to miss a header. We were talking recently on a on another show about uh, your record in front of goal in the season a couple of years before when you got 11 goals from centre-half. What on earth happened there? That's ridiculous.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was brilliant. It was just, like I say, this season was the best season I've seen of Fulham playing football. But that season you're talking about we were was my favourite season of playing football because that was one on, I mean, we had good players, obviously, don't get me wrong, but the team spirit was something I've never experienced. So then and I say, Togana was a little bit lucky in certain respects because he came in to a football club with some good players there, but with a, a spirit that was incredible and a camaraderie and a togetherness that was fantastic. And then he, he sort of built on that as well, but that was a real solid platform. But yeah, yeah, that season, season under Keegan, I scored a few goals, but yeah, that's, I still remember the one I missed against Man United. And I got flicked on it the the post, I think, from a corner, and I can remember it was Gary Neville, I think, just stepped in. He was on the post, and he moved into the cover of the goal. So I thought I'd head it just where he came from, and I like an inch wide of the post, and I was like, I was gutted. We obviously went on to lose that two-one. I think it's Sheridan scored in the last minute for a two-one defeat. Um, so yeah, what could have been, eh? But there we go. Never mind.
1: I remember that game because I went to every game that season and I remember that Sheringham goal and I just kind of shrugged and thought at least it means I don't have to sit on the M6 on a Wednesday night for a few hours. <laughs> it's a little bit of a break. <laughs> Not really the attitude, but bloody hell, it's a slog sometimes.
0: <laughs> I missed that chance just for you then. That's what I was doing So yes. There you go. Cheers, mate. Thanks very much.
1: <laughs> well, fortunately for the team, Cookie's injury didn't impact results. We went on to lose just three more times for the remainder of the season and, of course, went on to win the league. But not before some historic matches that will be talked about forevermore amongst the Fulham supporters, at least. The Blackburn away game is possibly the most famous and the 20-year anniversary has just passed, which is why we're recording this podcast. Blackburn was second in the league, some way behind us. But then Graham Souness had plenty to say in the build-up to the game as he audaciously commented that he thought his Blackburn side were a better side than Fulham. Kit, how did the Fulham players take his remarks? That's the manager's team talk done for him, isn't it?
0: Yeah, pretty much. Um, and we all obviously that, that was all said just before the game, playing Blackburn up at up at Ewood Park. We knew it was going to be a difficult game. We knew they were a really good side. But that did give us that extra little bit, I think, going into the game. And it's it's probably just as well because the way the, the game panned out, we needed every bit of luck and every bit of determination and Every bit of drive that we we could muster because it was, um again, it was a strange game and didn't quite go script, certainly, but was was obviously incredible in the end.
1: Yeah, so Matt Janssen opened the scoring after a few minutes, didn't he? Then Rufus got sent off. Then I think Louis Saha equalised just before half-time when Brad Friedel collided with his own player and dropped the ball right on his toe. And Saha was never going to miss that. In the second half, how intense was that? I remember being, uh, you know, behind the goal at the other end and it was just an onslaught from Blackburn. They were just camped out in our penalty area. You must have been absolutely exhausted from concentrating because we just gave a a magnificent defensive display and then hit them right on the counter-attack in injury time. And honestly, I felt sick from shouting so much when that goal went in. I've never cheered a goal so much in my life.
0: No, it was was incredible. And I I mean, that's the one time Tigana was, was always very calm, cool, and collected on the touchline. And I remember Shorty Davis scoring a goal in, in, in injury time and seemed to go on and run sprinting down the touchline, which was so out of character for him. So that that sort of showed what it meant. Matt Hanson scored after six minutes, I think it was. Rufus gets sent off. Um and so we make a sub that I can't remember if it was who went off, but Alan Nielsen's coming on. And um just changed the rules and you weren't allowed to wear rings now. So the linesman saying, no, you've got to take your ring off. Now, Al couldn't get his ring off. So I can remember, I was like pissing myself, laughing, willing to like literally bite his finger off to get onto the pitch, to come out of the edge. He's yanking at this ring. I think he's going to gonna, gonna pull his flipping finger off in a minute, Al. And uh, I don't know if he got it off in him, but they let him come on anyway. And um, yeah, we got, I mean, we got, obviously, we put proper under the cost second half. They, um, they, they were a really good side. Not quite the best team in the division, as Suey had said, don't get me wrong, but they were a very good team. Uh, I mean, they had uh, Damien Duff, Gary Flickcroft, players like that, you know, Friedel, uh, Henningberg, I think, was playing for him at the back. So we were up against it second half. But again, the spirit, we just had to dig in, really, really dig in. And and we had that side to us as well, you know, as well as the brilliant football, um, we had players who, who would roll their sleeves up and dig in and fight and scrap as well. And we had to show it on on that night. And uh. Yeah, ended up being a brilliant. I mean, for me, that's it wasn't the one that mathematically won us the league, but it was.
2: I think what makes that game so iconic and so special is that if you was going to make a film about a certain match, uh, that's how it would go. You'd get wound up by the comments of an arrogant opponent, get the setback of going a goal down, then then the whole world's against you. You go down to ten men when your backs against the walls, just to keep fighting as a team. And get that dramatic last-minute winner. I mean, if you was if you was going to write a script for a dramatic scene in a film, that is exactly how it would go. I, I compare it to the likes so of the Juventus comeback or the the Man City comeback in the Great Escape. It's up there with them for me as being dramatic games in film's history. Um, and I think as supporters, you always have that one game where, no matter how calm and collected you are, you are going to lose your shit. Because the adrenaline, the anger, the nerves. And for my mum, uh, she, she was introduced to Fulham in the 70s by my granddad. And she'd never seen Fulham in the top flight. And we'd even hit rock bottom. And to see that Sean Davis goal, I, I've got to say, that is her moment. I have never seen her react like
1: she did to that goal. This is the point, though, isn't it? When you've when you've been through such dark times as a football supporter, uh, this is what sport can do. You have to go through all those really crap times just to get a moment like that and fully appreciate and enjoy a moment like that. Um, and it was it was probably one of mine as well, to be honest. That and maybe the Rodney Macarrie goal and that Mickey Adams season a couple of years before before Kit joined. Um, but that one really was the one, as you said, Kit was the one that really felt more like promotion. Um, we knew we knew we were going to win the league. We knew after that, we knew we were going up. And it was just a case of crossing the T's and dotting the I's really, wasn't it? But that was the night. That was the pinnacle of that season for me.
0: From, from my point of view with that is, you know, when I first joined the club, um, I say under, under Keegan, We after games, we, we'd still go over the Riverside stand after the games and have a pint, you know, knowing full well these, these were people that had, had helped to sort of keep the club afloat you know a couple of seasons before nearly went out of existence obviously so you got to know people and and some of the fans and obviously it's, it's very different these days you got it's impossible you can't do it but we were able to do that and then a couple of years later on we know how much it means to these fans so you feel like you're giving something back a little bit almost and it was, it was quite a nice a nice sort of feeling to be honest
2: I think another reason that that game is so special is because although we probably would have won the league anyway, I think it all but confirmed that we were going to finish first. Uh, and I think the way we'd played that season, we would have been robbed if we had finished second. Because I think it would have taken the shine off it a little bit. When you are that dominant and that good, I think you deserve the crown of being champions. Because it doesn't happen often in your career, does it? We deserve to win the league.
0: Yeah, I, I agree 100%. But what, the the one thing that was funny about it, like I say, I, and I, I think that was the game that, that lives on in, in a lot of Fulham fans' memory, but from that season, I mean, that season was all about the beautiful, incredible football we played, whereby that game was all about sort of guts and resilience and fighting spirit and battling. So it's funny that the game of the season was nothing like the rest of the season, really, if if, if you know what I mean, because, like I say, some of the football, you know, Lee Clark, John Collins, Shawnee, the, the front three. The football was absolutely unbelievable. But that was all about, you know, the, the 10 players that were left on the pitch after Ruth got sent off, just digging in and fighting and scrapping and sort of laying bodies on the line and all that. So it was a great moment. But it, it like I say, it did it showed that it's a lot, We were we were a lot more than just a pretty footballing team who could score goals. There was... There's a lot more to it. It was built on real solid foundations.
1: Well, I talked earlier about how it can sometimes be a bit of a chore to keep going up and down the motorway, traipsing around the country to to watch your team. But definitely floated home that night and then floated back up north again three days later to see us wrap up promotion at Huddersfield with a 2-1 win. I remember the celebrations being superb that day once it was confirmed. But Kit, I guess the players couldn't celebrate too hard as there was another game two days later.
0: That's right. Yeah, I think um, again, like I say, it was uh, very much a sort of no drinking culture. Now things had changed, but I think a couple of us older players might have might have snuck a couple of beers that night on the quiet. But yeah, it was. I mean, like I say, it was we were knackered as well. To be perfectly honest, I mean, everyone had given their all. I think in that game, and it was sort of emotionally draining for everyone as well. So we we were shattered and. You know, also wanted to to finish the job off, if you like, against against Huddersfield. So, uh, yeah, we we certainly couldn't go too mad, that's for sure. That next
1: game was against Sheffield Wednesday when we dramatically wrapped the title up with four matches still to play. Kit, another last minute goal from Sean, where he's he's bent one into the top corner in injury time.
0: That's right, yeah. And I, I mean, what what I remember it for is Marcus Hannan played in goal for us. And Cookie was obviously in and around the changing room and, and all that. And after the game, it exactly was one all, wasn't it? And they they scored direct from a corner. So Cookie went up and shook Marcus's hand after the game and said, congratulations, the only goalkeeper in Fulham history has conceded one goal without having a shot to face. And Because uh, <laughs> they scored straight from a corner. Um, but it was, it was a funny moment. And, um, yeah, again, Sean had a brilliant season. A couple of cheeky quick free kicks. I remember the quick free kick against Birmingham. And he did one in, in that game against Northampton where Fabrice scored the world. He took another quick free kick in the other corner. Uh, he, had a, he had a brilliant season. A young boy coming through. Uh, really sort of, that season he really developed and sort of turned, started turning into the top player, like I say, that he, he became. But it was a... Yeah, again, it was great times. And it was it was nice to be able to do that in front of in front of our home crowd.
1: You mentioned Marcus Hanneman there, and yeah, how I remember that goal going straight in from a corner. But without that, I guess we wouldn't have had that iconic goal from Sean Davis to win the league. But. I don't feel comfortable talking about Marcus Hanneman and not talking about Mike Taylor, who's one of my favourite Fulham players of all time. I, th- I think he was a magnificent keeper, and he had an outstanding season. T- tell us a bit about Mike Taylor, what he was like to play in front of.
0: Yeah, Mike was an outstanding keeper. And I mean, physically, he was like he was really, really strong and, and agile, and we built a good relationship. Sort of me, Cookie Morgs. Um, and Mike going back to obviously the Keegan days and so so again like I say you know people talk a lot and rightly so about Louis Sarr's contribution and the front three and John Collins and that but Mike was brilliant as well I've got to say and you know then the likes of Steve Finn and Rufus, Cookie and Melv as well and everyone played their part and a lot of a lot of the goals that were scored, you know, they were real team goals. Mike could start with a ball and we'd, we'd just play through opposition and cut through and sort of every player touched the ball quite often and we'd end up scoring a goal. The football was that good that season that everyone sort of played their part.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I agree. And um, Danny, any memories of that Sheffield Wednesday game? It's nice to see us lift the trophy at the end of the season, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, well, that's all you remember about it. It was uh, amazing scenes I think I was 12 and it's just the sheer joy of being around you know all the fans being so happy it was such a such a fortunate time for me you know I'd seen Fulham promoted three times in what four years and to have that as your first real memories of the club I'm very spoiled in a way so I just want to thank Kit and you know all the players for for getting us to the Premier League cuz um no one had a clue who Fulham were when I was in primary school. And it kind of put Fulham on the map, if you like, being in the Premier League. It's almost like you're accepted. I was just buzzing to know that the club I supported was going to be in the Premiership the following year. It was just amazing. For for a young supporter, just
1: amazing. Yeah, I agree. I'm I'm a few years older than you, but I just used to get all sorts of stick for for supporting Fulham um, at school as well. And nobody really knew who Fulham were. But I think, like you say, I, I mean, I'd, I'd left school by the time this happened. But, you know, you go and chat to your mates down the pub and people are almost happy for you that they knew that you used to go every week to watch Fulham and you would watched them through all the divisions. And now all of a sudden you're in the Premier League and people are happy. And there's a bit of a, a bit of respect, I think, for well done, you deserve this. You've watched a lot of crap over the years and now, you know, you're you're in the big time. And not only that, but, you know, we, we held our own for a number of years as well. We, we were a bloody good side for, for a number of years in, in the Premier, Premiership, which then went on to become the Premier League. 13 years we stuck around for, which was pretty amazing, really, considering where we'd come from in such a short space of time.
0: What I will say about it as well is, you know, we talk about this brilliant promotion season, but it was a longer-term plan put in, in place going back. I mean, I'd signed from Man City and when, when I signed I signed it was like third tier when I signed Cookie phoned me up and I spoke to Keegan and, and Keegan said listen we've got, we've got a five year plan it Said him and Al had at the time they had a five year plan the club would be in the Premier League in five years and they sold me this and I sort of bought into it and believed in it but it was a plan put in place by the whole club Not the biggest club in the world. And and it was in the third tier at the time, like I say. But it was run so professionally. Like Neil Rodford was the the chief exec at the time. There was a definite plan in place. And obviously the owner was incredible, a huge part of that. Keegan was brilliant. But a lot of work from a lot of people behind the scenes done to make it all come to fruition. And like I say, that five-year plan come to fruition in three years. I had the two promotions in three years, which was an incredible time for the football club. And and I
2: mentioned this to you a couple of years ago when we did um, your interview for Fulham Focus. It's not just two promotions in three years. It's creating history because Fulham are still the only club in England to reach 100 points on two occasions. And when you think of that little core group, Taylor, yourself, Cookie, Finnan, Brevitt, Sean Davis, Barry, maybe a couple more, You created history because you were a big part of both 101-point promotions. So it wasn't just like Fulham are the only club to do it more than once with two separate teams, with the same team, effectively. And maybe that isn't recognised because it's quite a a unique stat. But that in itself just makes you legends.
0: Cheers, Dan. I'll take that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, there's not much else you can say to that, really, is there? Kit's just sat there for the record, just nodding away, agreeing. So,
0: <laughs> yep, I am. Uh, it, was, it was it was brilliant times to be associated with what is a special football club. So, you know, I think the honour, the honour, the privilege was, was all ours, really. But we had some great laughs along the way as well, I've got to say. Some brilliant times.
1: Well, we can't really talk about this season without talking about a man you briefly mentioned a second ago, and that is Mohamed Al-Fayed. At that time, you thought of Fulham and you thought of Al Fayed, particularly the media. It, there was, you know, obviously that real, real connection. Um, what was he like? What was he like as a figurehead for the club? What was he like as, as an employer? And what was he like as a character?
0: Larger than life, obviously, as a personality. You know, clearly loved the club. You know, there's no two ways about it. And, and the Fulham fans loved him. Um, a special relationship. I mean, like I said, my first season... And the Keegan was my favourite. Like you say, I ended up scoring a few goals and we got promotion and and 100 points or whatever. But it was just such a laugh as well, the team spirit. And, you know, we get like Michael Jackson came into the changing rooms after a game with Tony Curtis and Keith Allen was always floating around. Hugh Grant was always there. It was just bizarre, bonkers, third tier of, of English football. And all these like famous people come in and in and around it. And it was just brilliant. It was incredible, incredible times. And like I say, the, the owner then was was at the heart of it all. And uh, you know, I think what, whatever happens in the future, he'll always have a special place in, in Fulham fans' hearts and might be so.
1: That Michael Jackson incident when um, when he just appeared, was there any pre warning or did he were you just there getting ready and all of a sudden Michael Jackson stood there in the changing room? no,
0: it's what happened We. There was rumours before the game that Michael Jackson was. There. I mean, like it's, it's a lookalike alike or something, or whatever. We just beaten Wigan 2 0 and I don't, I not scored one in that game, just so you know. And uh, <laughs> so after the game, I remember I got a bit of a whack on my leg, and so I'm icing my leg. No one else in the change room, and then the chairman walks in with Michael Jackson, and I'm sitting there like literally stunned. So I'm like, I go, chairman, and he, he like says hello to me, and then Michael Jackson says, hey, great game. To me and i'm like i should have gone f- or not bad or something you know, all these lines i've thought about afterwards but at the time i just sort of like open mouth just nodded and he's like uh, most bizarre unbelievable thing and they walked through to what was then the, the old players bar and i'm like lads you never guess what i've just met michael jackson and they're like yeah you never guess what we've just all had our picture taken on the pitch with him and the chairman so they've got a team photo all the boys but they have an alpha and a Michael Jackson in the team photo apart from me because I was icing my leg in the changing room. So, I come next week, they give everyone the, the team the picture. So, I've got one, but I'm not in it. So, my girls are like, as, as my girls were growing up, they're all like, love Michael Jackson's music and that. And I said, oh, I met him, I've got a picture upstairs. So, I go and get the photograph, and they're like, well, Where are you, dad? I'm like, Yeah, well, like this, I just scored a, you know, a great goal against Wigan with my left foot. I was icing my in the changing room. They're like, not interested. I took That's it. My Michael Jackson.
1: <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, moving on from Michael Jackson, then. <laughs> One name we haven't mentioned yet is Biani Goldbeck, and another we've barely spoken about is Steve Finnan. The pair formed a really solid partnership down the right hand side that season. Kip, what were they like as personalities and to play alongside? I've always kind of got the impression they were both quite quiet.
0: Yeah, they were probably. Finns especially quite funny with Finns because he was a lovely boy, really really nice lads, and he he sort of palled up with Jeff Horsfield, who as characters they were proper chalk and cheese, but they became like best mates and they were a real like the odd couple those two because uh, Jeff was bonkers um, and Fins was sort of Captain Sensible really so, but they they became really tight and really really big mates and almost inseparable. Um, at times, and really good friends. Uh, but yeah, Steve, Steve I mean, Finham was a brilliant player, really, really good. Just one of those sort of consummate professionals, really, just went about his job. Must have been a manager's dream, I would imagine. Never a moment's trouble, just just got on with things. And like I say, him and Biani linked up really, really well. Obviously, with, with Biani coming in with his connections up the road, not always easy to come and settle at Fulham with that in mind but I think he he won the fence over pretty early with his his like high energy performances he liked to shot from distance that's for sure we used to be screaming at him to pass it and he'd be trying to shoot from 45 yards but he did have a great strike on him um yeah and, and, and like you say they formed a really good understanding down that right hand side and I mean that team when it was flowing, it was a really good team, but there were little units within it and good link-ups, like the midfield boys would link up really, really well and with almost like a telepathic understanding. And I think certainly Steve Finnan and, and Bjarne Goldback had that to an extent as well.
1: All right, well, with the title secured and the promotion party in full swing with four games left to play, there was only one more box left to be ticked. We've already mentioned that Fulham are the only club to reach a century of points more than once and history was made on the 24th of April 2001 as we beat Wolves 2-0 at Craven Cottage to reach that 100-point mark. It's a game fondly remembered for the cameo Simon Morgan made off the bench and he was even given man of the match by Diddy David Hamilton. Danny, the perfect way for a club legend to sign off his Fulham career?
2: Absolutely. It was a great moment and I think it showed what a special connection the fans and Simon Morgan have got and how much he means to us. Uh, Morgan's Fulham career for me tells the story of the epic journey Fulham have been on as a club, you know from the suffering of fear in the end of the club and hitting rock bottom with our league position, all the way through to fulfilling the Alphire project and getting to the Premier League. And I know the promotion under Mickey Adams would have been closure for a lot of fans for those dark days. Uh, that they had to endure for so long. I think a promotion to the third tier was the bare minimum that suffering deserved. Um, our supporters deserved top flight football for the dedication the core group gave to the club when it needed them most. So reaching the top flight for the first time since 1968 seemed like the perfect way for Simon Morgan's career to go full circle. And although it was his only prom- um, contribution in that promotion... I think just looking at the squad overhaul from the Alfire takeover, you know, one by one, everyone was being replaced around him, even Mickey, and he was the only one to survive that and and to carry on that resurrection through the divisions. So that little cameo for me is is so significant because I think if it had been anyone else, it would have been forgotten. But it was like he, as a player, he oversaw Fulham through the most vulnerable stage of our history. And then he came on, just for that 10 minutes or whatever, just to hand over the baton to the players, like, you know, we're promoted to the Premier League. The club's ready to start a new era without me, if you like. Um, So, I think it had a a real romantic feel to it. And, of course, Diddy Hamilton, you know, was brilliant at judging the mood of the crowd and and understanding what the club's about and just giving him man the match, you know. It just, it was very fitting, I felt. Very Fulham. Uh, And it was a privilege to be there that night and you know, how could you not have the utmost respect for Simon Morgan and what he did for the club? You know, absolute legend. Very
1: nice, mate. Very nicely put. Kit Simon was a teammate of yours for a few seasons. What was he like? Did you did you get on with him? Did you enjoy playing with him?
0: Uh, yeah, I did, and he's he's still he's one of the lads who I I still keep in touch with now. Morgs. I <laughs> I used to come in every morning and uh, I'd be like, morning, morning, Morgs. How how are you today? And every day he'd say rubbish. So um, that's why I just call him now. So every time, even now, like I say, I still speak to him and see him regularly now. And I just, rubbish. And he goes, all right, rubbish. And that's it. Because that's, uh, he used to love his, his banter. He, he could have a moan up, more That was his banter. He was brilliant at it. But um, I think Danny sort of summed it up really nicely. He, he was the one player um, sort of involved with the club and, you know it's changing, and it, a lot of people, obviously Mickey, Mickey's promotion, and all those players. Some of them became like cult heroes, obviously, with the fans and stuff like that. But then lots of people came and went. You know, it was a time of transition at the club. But Morgs was the one person who was able to sort of stay with it because of his his ability. He was he was um, he was never the quickest. I don't think you mind me saying, but he was he had a really like. Top football brain, Morse, really clever, intelligent footballer. So his ability as a player, but also just his mentality as well, as a person to sort of stay with it and and go with the changes that were happening at the club. You know, he saw a lot of his teammates obviously leave during that time, and I so say he was that one player. But then he formed new friendships and relationships, and and got on with it. He was again a really good professional, excellent footballer. And a top lad, r- r- rubbish, as he would say himself. But he's, uh, no, he's, he's a real top guy, Morgues. And like I, said, I still speak to him regularly now and uh, see him about. And he's, uh, he's, he's doing well for himself.
1: Last time I saw Morgues was on the tube after the playoff final win against Aston Villa and been drinking heavily throughout the day. We'd just been promoted, queued up down Wembley Way to get on the tube, piled on the tube, and he was just there by himself. So we were piling over. I bet he thought, oh, for God's sake. Get away from me, you pissed-up idiots. That's good fun, though. There's a good
0: double time. whammy for him, like, Fulham getting promoted and Villa getting beaten as well. So he was exactly. well at me. So Exactly. <laughs> he went, oh, I bet you've had a
1: good day, boys, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, cheers, Mors. Legend. Love him.
0: <laughs> no, he's brilliant. Because he works for the Premier League now and sort of heads up all the VAR stuff and all that. So I do a little bit of this referees assessing now, and that's, that's through Morg. So I speak to him like, on a regular basis now. Very nice. Good stuff.
2: You know, all this reminiscing about that season, and I'm just picturing being there for that Wolves game when we said goodbye to Sam Morgan. Matt, do you think, in some way, subconsciously, that season is, is so special to the fans, not just because of the football, but because it was also pretty much the last fantastic memories we, we had of like the enclosure and the terraces behind the goals, no roof on the Putney end? I know we had the following season in the Premier League, but then we went off to Loftus Road. And uh, Don't get me wrong, the the ground now, I love the way it is. Uh, It's it's brilliant, but it was just different then. The atmosphere was different, being able to stand there. Uh, I always stood in the same spot in the enclosure with my granddad and my mum, and it was just a completely different time. Do you think that nostalgia, that old-school feel to it plays a part in why we love it so much?
1: as in that season why we love that season so much
2: yeah the reason i highlight that season is because that was more or less the last big memory we had with the ground as it as it was then and then everything sort of changed that was like the end of an era for me i would cut off after that season and then a new era has begun with modern for them
1: yeah i don't know i've never really seen it that way i suppose i guess i guess i just see my last memory of the cottage looking like that was that Premiership season before we went off to Loftus Road, and then we had that couple of um, that couple of European games as well, didn't we? Before we before we left, but yeah, I, I see what you mean. It's it's kind of, it was building up to that, but we were forced to leave, weren't we? We had to leave, and the ground had to change in order for uh, for us to stay there. We had to put the seats in, so we, it was almost kind of the story of our success, wasn't it? That we had to leave and um, and and go to Loftus Road for a couple of seasons. But, yeah, n- nostalgically, of of course, it's nice that we had the, the Kevin Keegan season, uh, promotion season, championship winning season, and then that Tagana championship winning season to kind of sign off there, if you like.
2: Kit, you, you was involved with both looks of the ground. Obviously, one's a player, one's a manager. What did you prefer?
0: I've got to say, for, for me... Like I say, my favourite season ever playing football was my first season at Fulham, that one under Keegan. So the, especially the um, evening games under lights at the cottage, that was just, for me, that was the best. Those were like my sort of happiest memories, I've got to say. I mean, when I was manager, we had some some good times there, some great nights, and I, I couldn't beat as an experienced uh, you know, playing evening games under the lights at cottage with some of the great cup ties and that we had there. It was was brilliant. I know it's progress and things move on and stuff like that, but I get quite nostalgic and think back to the uh, the good old days, so to speak. And um, yeah, great, great times. Great times. All right, Danny, is there anything else you'd like to ask before we look to wrap this up?
2: Um, Yeah, well, Kit's just mentioned about being a manager and I just wondered if there was anything you took from... Tugano's way of management that you you brought into your own when you became our manager in 2014?
0: Yeah, I think you pick up things from a lot of people um, as you go along. And Tigana you couldn't help but pick up a lot of things from him. A lot of what he brought in was brilliant. But again, the point that you made earlier about maybe some of the stuff under Bracewell, maybe learnt more from, because, you know, I went through that little spell of nil-nil. So, now, when I took over Fulham as manager, obviously after Felix McGat, there were a lot of things wrong at the football club on and off the pitch that needed addressing. I thought I could either start one of two ways. It was either because the team, the balance of the team was nowhere near right. I could either start at the back and work my way forward or start at the front and work my way back. Now, I think I've misjudged it a little bit because I'm thinking back to what Fulham fans wanted back to like my playing days. And like you're saying it, it wasn't Fulham. Getting all those nil-nil draws under brace It wasn't Fulham. That's not what the Fulham fans wanted. So I started at the front. I made sure we could score goals first and then work my way backwards, which is probably a bit unusual for a centre-half to maybe think like that. But I sort of was thinking, you know, what I, I felt Fulham fans sort of wanted at the time. And even when I got sacked, we were like, you know, leading scorers in the championship. So I certainly, I certainly got that bit right, but didn't quite tighten up. Defensively, we didn't play. We wanted a whole field player we were crying out for. Um, didn't get that sorted soon enough for me to keep the job, certainly. But because obviously, after this stage now, Fulham have had those 13 years in the Premier League. So a lot of maybe the newer fans were used to different things and different style of football, whatever. I don't know. So I think I'll that a little bit, um, if I'm honest. Uh, but Listen, like I say, we, we certainly scored a load of goals. You know, Moussa and Ross were scoring goals for fun and we were leading scorers when I got the bullet. So I I was quite happy in a lot of ways, but obviously, you know, maybe misread it a little bit.
2: But in fairness to you, like you said, there was a lot wrong at the club when Magat was sacked. And I don't think it would have worked out the same way had Djukanovic come in straight away. So... I think you played a really important role in those two years or whatever it was that you was in charge. I think that transition and and stabilising the team, because we could have easily done what bigger clubs have done before and, and get relegated again. It could have easily happened. We would what like eight games into the season and still hadn't won a game. If we had gone down, God knows what would have happened.
0: I'm just saying, like I say, with the the bigger picture, I think I maybe misgauged it a little bit. Like you say, yeah, we had one point from the first seven games when I had to take over and it was a mishmash of a squad. I mean, the first game of that season, we had like 10 club debuts and nine league debuts when we played Ipswich away. It was all over the place. You know, it it needed a lot of work and was building. I took over with bottom, finished 17th for Summit and then got sat when we were 12th. So things were building and progressing, but probably not quite quick enough for some people's needs or whatever but you know I I look at it now and I think did I do a good job yeah or just you know 24th to 17th to 12th once it starts going the other way then I think people can have a moan but all the time it's going in the right direction you maybe stick with it a little bit longer or whatever but delighted to see obviously the club up in the Premier League and hopefully we'll have enough to stay up. All right let's
1: bring it back to the 2000-2001 season really quickly and wrap this up so You've talked about the 98-99 season being your favourite under Kevin Keegan, but where
0: does this one rank in all your seasons of playing kit? It's it's such a funny season because for a lot of it, first half of the season, certainly, I was on the touchlines watching it. And like I say, as much as that was frustrating, it was also a privilege because the football the boys were playing was sensational. So for watching quality football, and especially I singled him out at the start and I'll do it again, Louis Saha at close quarters over that whole season was an absolute privilege for me. So just to be part of that and to see it at close quarters, it's right up there as one of my most enjoyable seasons, uh, sort of watching <laughs> as much as the playing side of it as well. So it was it was a funny season, but like I say, the football played was sensational. It was, it was an honour and a privilege.
1: How about for you, Danny? This is one of the best as a supporter, wasn't it, without doubt?
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously, when you
2: look at finishing seventh in the Premier League and and getting to the Europa League final, it's strange that you would compare a promotion from the league below. But I think it's the manner in which we were promoted. We were just the best. And it's not often that Fulham are in that kind of position. So to be the best and to do it in style and to be well ahead of everybody else in terms of mentality. I mean, we've already touched on the things that Tagana changed and that, Uh, maybe brought a European culture that we wasn't used to. I I just think for that level of football, we was a good decade ahead of the times. Uh, And I think when you look back on teams you're proud of, it would have to be joint top with the Europa League team, I would say. Probably
1: my favourite team, though, because of the way we played. There's no doubt the football was absolutely scintillating, consistently scintillating because of the players and the work ethic that we had. Um, and yeah, definitely up there for me. As as I always say, the, the Mickey Adams 96-97 season was always my favourite because we were on a shoestring budget and it was kind of drew a line under some dark times for the club um, where we'd just been awful for, for years and years and years. And that was the first promotion I ever saw as well. But then the Kevin Keegan one, we just steamrolled the division. But it was just a different type of football that we were playing under, under Tigana. Um, and that's you know, that's that's why it's always going to be up there as well. So yeah, I absolutely love that season. Well, Kit, thanks ever so much for joining us. I absolutely love that. It's always good to go back over one of our best ever seasons as a club. Really appreciate you taking the time to join us, mate.
0: No, listen, it's my pleasure and it brought back a lot of uh, a lot of brilliant memories for me as well. So thanks to you boys.
1: Nice one, thanks. Thanks, Danny, as always, for joining. We'll be back next week with the regular full and focus schedule as this season begins to draw to a close, so speak to you soon. Cheers.
0: Colón.